1 Corinthians chapter 5 is our sermon text, and uh, the reason you should, as churches, just preach right through books of the Bible is because of passages like today. Uh, if you've paid any attention to your worship guide, you'll see that today's sermon title is very inviting. It's the kind of thing that really causes people to come out of the woodwork and uh, love to come to church, purging the evil person. All right, we're glad you're here. Thanks for coming. But uh, if we were just picking our favorite topics, we probably wouldn't put our finger on 1 Corinthians chapter 5. However, it is one of the mightiest expressions of the love of God. And I trust that that will be evident as we work our way through it. Last week, we made our way to the end of the first section of 1 Corinthians. Now, there's not little brackets in your Bible, but in the original, there were not chapter divisions and verse divisions. Paul just wrote a letter. 1 Corinthians, and he didn't even title that. We call it that because there's a second one that's in our Bible, so we call it 2 Corinthians. But Paul wrote them this love letter under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it does have some obvious sections. Chapters 1 to 4, which we concluded last Sunday, dealing with the theme of the truth of the gospel and its application to the issue of divisions and factions in the church. Today we begin the second section of letter, which is chapters 5 and 6, and it deals especially with the glorious gospel of Christ being applied to the issue of sexuality. So many times we divorce the Bible from life, but God's Word touches every aspect of our life, and intimacy and sexuality is no exception. This sermon's going to deal with the themes that Hollywood would ascribe an R rating to. And I've prayed that the Lord would allow me to speak with biblical discretion and categories and in such a way that would afford parents to guide your very inquisitive children to God's Word as the basis for their understanding of God honoring intimacy. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Hear the word of the Lord. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. God's word says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant. And have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous or swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. This is God's word. Well, as I mentioned, chapter 5 begins a new section in 1 Corinthians. 1 to 4 dealt with the truth of the gospel 
and the gospel's application to divisions in the church. Therefore, we've titled the whole 1 Corinthians sermon series, The Gospel for Life. The gospel applies to life. That's what Paul does in chapters 1 to 4. But he does it again in chapters 5 to 6 in this new section, applying the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to the issue of sexual sin in the church. Then in chapter 6, to the issue of lawsuits, people taking each other to court. And then at the end of chapter 6, he returns to the issue of sexuality and deals with the gospel's application to sexual ethics generally, not to this sexual sin situation that we're dealing with today. Chapter 7 introduces a third section of the letter where Paul begins to respond to the questions that the church at Corinth had sent to him through Chloe's people. In chapter 7, verse 1, we know it's a new section because Paul says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, and then he just deals with those one at a time. But I want you to know that 1 to 4, 5 and 6, 7 and beyond, because after he opens with his word concerning the gospel's application to all of life, 1 to 4, before he jumps in to responding to their questions, he says, ah, something else I want to talk to you about. It's actually reported, that's the way chapter 5 begins, it's been told to me, so before he gets to their issue, he brings up an issue that they must first deal with. Why go into the secondary when they're in jeopardy of abandoning the primary? A huge issue that Chloe's people must have explained to Paul in their visit to him at Ephesus, in addition to passing on along the list of questions that the Corinthians had for Paul. Paul writes in 5.1, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you. Before he began engaging their stuff, he wanted to put this matter on the table and clearly apply the gospel to it. Does the gospel apply? How? How does the gospel influence our understanding of sexual morality? And how does the gospel intrude upon issues of sexual immorality and give us an understanding of how we're to deal with it as Christ's church. Now, if I were to come in here this morning and say, it's a strange thing, it's never happened before, but last night God told me in a dream that there's a person in our church having an affair, and I'm about to tell you their name. If you're sweating, you need to talk to one of the pastors today. Because we love you. And we don't want you to die in your sins. That's what Paul's doing. I know you got some questions, but first, there's a guy living in sexual immorality in your church. And you all know who he is. So there's three parts to this passage. The first is the church's problem. The second is the church's purity. And the third is the church's plan. The problem is that they're tolerating sexual sin. Verses 1 to 5. Tolerating sexual sin. There's three parts to this section. Tolerating sexual sin. This is a problem. The first part of this is a personal problem. That's the issue at hand. Verse 1. It's reported that there is sexual immorality among you. specifies that it's the kind, verse 1, of such a kind that doesn't even exist among the Gentiles. Now what does that word mean, the Gentiles? Paul's using a specific designation there because of the church to whom he's writing. Corinth is a Gentile city. They were all Gentiles. And what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth you're not among them anymore. He writes in another passage, Philippians, and in other places like Romans, you're true Jews now. You're the true circumcision. Not your outward rituals and all your duty law-keeping, but the circumcision of your heart, worshiping in the Spirit of God, glorying in Jesus Christ. You're the true Jews. You're the complete Jews. 
But the Gentiles, people who don't even know Jesus, hate that kind of sin, and you guys are tolerating it, verse 1. Immorality of such a kind that does not even exist among the Gentiles. This personal problem, sexual immorality, so gross that not even the pagans would tolerate it. And again in verse 1, he specifies clearly. Somebody has his father's wife. Someone has his father's wife. There's a lot of possible scenarios None of them are good. (laughs) Either dad's still alive and son is shacking up with stepmom, presumably. Father is dead. Son marries stepmom. Father and stepmom are divorced and son's now with stepmom. As I said, a lot of possible scenarios. Zero of them are good. This is a problem. Sexual immorality in the church. It's not only a personal problem. Do you notice that Paul says that it's also a corporate problem? His sin, you got a problem. It's a corporate problem in verse 2. You, that's plural, have become arrogant. This word literally is puffed up. You're proud. Paul talks to the church at Corinth this way bunches of times here in chapter 5, but also in the previous chapter, chapter 4, verse 6, chapter 4, verse 18, chapter 4, verse 19. says it again in chapter 8, verse 1, again in chapter 13, verse 4. They were a proud, proud, proud people. Presumably they're proud because... They're so tolerant. We welcome everybody. We don't judge anybody. They're proud. Their pride should have been something else, and Paul says what that should have been. This is a corporate problem as well. Verse 2, you have not mourned instead, grieved, been broken. When's the last time your heart felt something that resembles what God's heart feels about sin? I hope you know this. The devil keeps repeating this lie in every generation. He repeats it just about every morning. And the devil says, the reason lost people shouldn't consider Christ and the reason some maybe genuinely saved people shouldn't connect with the church is because we're all a bunch of hypocrites. Well, let me just tell you again what God's Word and godly people have been saying for centuries. Christians are not sinless people. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is basically this. Christians are repenting sinners. Continuing to repent. That's what Paul's talking about. You haven't mourned. Sin doesn't grieve you. You don't have the heart of God pulsing through your veins. You're proud and you've not mourned. Not only this personal problem, sexual immorality, this corporate problem also includes some action that they failed to do. You see it in verse 2, don't you? You have not removed the offender. Now, I want you to notice that he doesn't say anything about this woman, the stepmom. And that's because we can deduce from this passage and plenty of other texts that talk about the local church and the issue that we're dealing with called church discipline. It's all over the Bible, Old and New Testaments. The reason the woman's not mentioned is because she's presumably not a professor. She doesn't claim to be a Christian, and she's certainly not a member of this church. And Paul's going to explain later God judges the people outside. You're to judge the people inside. This guy is a member of the congregation. This woman is not. So he says, you should have removed him. You haven't done it. It's a corporate problem. So the personal problem is they're tolerating sexual sin. The corporate problem is they've not 
mourned. Instead, they've been proud, and the evidence of that is they've not removed the offender. But there's also in this first section an apostolic response and command. So under number one, the church's problem, there's a personal problem, a corporate problem, but there's also an apostolic response, Paul's response, and then a command given. This is verses 3 to 5. In verse 3, the apostolic response has a few parts. First, Paul says he already, past tense, judged the man as though he were present with the Corinthians. So he's saying, I'm telling you what I've done already. I've already judged the man. How does that square with don't judge lest you be judged? It squares by just continuing to read the chapter where Jesus said that. Where Jesus said in verses 12 and 13, you'll know them by their fruits. It's not never judge under any circumstances. It's rightly appraise under the light of the gospel. So Paul says, his apostolic response, I've already judged the man as though I were present with you. Had I been a member of your church, sitting in your congregation, this issue already would have been voted on. That's what I've done. And then he says, when you, plural, verse 3, are assembled with the power of the Lord Jesus. He's talking about the ecclesia, the assembly. He doesn't use the word ecclesia for assembly here. He uses a different word related to synagogue, the gathering of the saints. When you all are gathered, assembled, with the power of the Lord Jesus. Now notice, Paul's not writing this letter to the pastors of the church at Corinth, is he? He's writing it to the whole congregation. It's the assembled congregation, not the elders, not the pastors. It's not even, astonishingly, the apostles, Paul himself, to whom Christ has given the keys of the kingdom. He's given them, Matthew chapter 18, to the local church. You are to exercise, adjudicate justice under the light of the gospel for people who say they're Christians and live in unrepentant sin. Matthew 18 spells it out, doesn't it? If your brother sins, here's the process of church discipline. Go and show him his fault in private, one-to-one. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take two, uh, pardon me, one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you, interesting word, as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you, plural, you church, bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose, plural, on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. The Lord Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to the local church. And Paul's saying, when you assemble, here's why there's any authority. The power of the Lord Jesus. He's talking about a judge. Jesus is actually present with you by His Spirit delegating righteous judgment. Second, under this apostolic response, Paul also points out uh, Verse 5, a strange statement, right? I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now I said at the beginning of this sermon that this is a sermon about God's love. How does that fit with God's love? I have decided, Paul writes, this is his response apostolically, I have decided to deliver such a one, that's this man in incestual, incest, sexual immorality, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. God's word's clear that the God of this world is none other than our enemy, Satan himself. And so, it's as if when God saves people and gathers them into local churches, we're in an alternative kingdom. We're under the reign of Christ together. We have the covering 
and protection of the Spirit of God in a community of saints that are covenanted together to seek the Lord, to pray for one another, to grow in the faith, to evangelize our neighbors. But those who are outside of that covering are under the realm of Satan. Tom Schreiner writes about this phrase, deliver such a one to Satan. He says, delivering a person over to Satan is another way of saying that he or she is expelled from the church. All unbelievers, all unbelievers, all unbelievers are in Satan's sphere since he works in, Ephesians 2.2, all who are disobedient, and is, 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world. Church membership ought to really be attractive to you. It's accountability. Church membership doesn't save anybody. You can't see my heart and I can't see yours. But there's accountability here. And in local churches that are under the lordship of Jesus, so to deliver somebody to Satan, I believe Schreiner gets it right and many others who say is to expel the man from the church. We can no longer conscientiously affirm that this person's profession of faith is in keeping with what the Bible says is true of believers. A.K.A. we hate our sin. In the apostolic response, not only does Paul say, I've already judged the man as though I were present. Not only does he say, I've delivered him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. But finally, in his apostolic response, Paul says in verse 5, so that. Here's the purpose. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You can see the so that's of the Bible or the purpose statements of the Bible. So that, this is a redemptively designed delivering. The aim is love. We want this man's spirit saved, and this phrase, in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's the final judgment. The church's judgment to expel the man has in view a day of greater judgment that's coming. This one is redemptively aimed. The, the other one, the day of the Lord Jesus, is final. Everlastingly too late. No more opportunity to repent. So we expel him now in love in hopes that he'll be awakened to the horror of his sin and his treason against God so that he will be saved. His spirit will be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That he would come back Shriner again summarizes the passage so well, it's worth quoting from again. Blatant, unrepentant sinning should not be tolerated in the church of Jesus Christ. Paul calls upon the entire church at Corinth to discipline the offender and does not limit the action of discipline to the leaders. The purpose of discipline is not to take revenge, not to pour out our anger. It's not punitive. Instead, the hope is that the person who is ensnared in sin through the process of discipline will turn from their sin and repent and thus be saved on the last day. That's why I can say this is a loving passage. What's more loving? To pat you on your back? Put springs on your wagon while you roll to hell? Or to stand in the road and say over my dead body, no, 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 you can't go that way anymore. I love you too much. To pretend like your sin is not an offense to a holy God. I love you enough to tell you, even if you hate me for telling you, you can shoot the messenger all you want, but it won't change the message. There is a holy God who loves you enough to set you free from your sin. That's the apostolic response. So that his spirit may be saved. The command, verse 4 and verse 2, number 1, verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled... He wants them to do something when they're together. Now here it's all by inference. Later in the passage he gets to explicit. But here he's saying, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord. Do you remember another passage where that phrase comes up? In my name. Where two or three are gathered in my name. Guess where that passage is found? Matthew 18. The church discipline passage. Matthew 18, 15 to 18, includes where two or three are gathered in my name. 
There I am in the midst of them, right in context to the church discipline instruction from Jesus. So he's saying when you're gathered in the name of Jesus, discipline's not something you shouldn't do. It's a promise that Jesus is actually right there with you as you do this. That's comforting to those who are dealing with such sober situations. Verse 2, you should remove. That's what Paul said he does. Verse 3, you should judge. Verse 5, you should deliver. These are commands from the apostles. So the first is the church's problem. That is, they're tolerating sexual sin. The second is the church's purity. This is trusting the Savior. Trusting the Savior. It's verses 6, 7, and 8. If you'll take a look, close look at verse 6, Paul says your boasting is not good. Do you see that? Your boasting is not good. Boasting? Boasting. Does everybody remember the context we're talking about here? These people are bragging. They are boasting. They are puffed up with pride about what? They're a sexually inclusive church. I keep saying this, but I've got to say it again because of obvious reasons, I hope. It feels to me like this chapter was written this morning. The church at Corinth was proud because they were harboring a man in their membership who was living in sexual immorality. They knew it, and so did the community. Does this sound like 21st century America to you? The whole world may well be swallowed up in the tidal wave of the sexual revolution that is currently among us. You don't have to look far to find churches galore who are loosening their stance on the biblical vision of gender, sexuality, and marriage. And they are, in no uncertain terms, boasting of how inclusive and accepting and affirming they are. But on the last day, when you and I stand with trembling knees before the God of the universe, they will all be on the wrong side of history. So Paul draws their attention to the Savior. Your boasting is not good. Where can purity be found? Paul draws their attention to two Old Testament feasts. The Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Passover. Verses 6-8, through eight, Unleavened Bread. Verse 7, Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, Paul was concerned about this unrepentant sin situation, not only for the man in sin, but in verse 6 he says, don't you know? A <laughs> little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. He was concerned for the church. The high price you pay for being affirming and inclusive and accepting of people who are living in unrepentant sin is your own spiritual well-being. It's a lot easier to pull somebody down out of a chair than it is to pull somebody up into it if you're having a tug-of-war contest. Therefore, Paul uses the example of unleavened bread. To this day in Jewish households, it's more precious obviously in the households of Messianic Jews who come to Jesus as the one mediator between God and men. But to this day, some of the ancient feasts are still observed, but in biblical times, you can find it in Exodus 12 and other passages. Jesus uses parables that hearken back to the issue of unleavened bread or the leaven of the Pharisees. Jesus is repeatedly talking about this, but in Paul's example, he's reminding them of what the children would do. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, you may remember, was seven days long. And during the course of those seven days, they were to eat no leaven. And it reminded them of when God saved Israel out of Egypt, and they had to leave in haste, not even time, to leaven the dough, just bake it and go. God's going to take care of you. And so annually, the children of Israel were commanded, and they joyfully partook in observing the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And, and during those annual feasts, the heads of the household, probably the mothers and grandmothers I can envision in my mind, would hide a little broken piece of leavened bread somewhere in the house. The children would be outside and they would come in 
And it would be their job to find that one morsel and get it out. There's allusions in Scripture that suggest that they probably took it outside and burned it. Symbolism of how it was to be eradicated with force. But nonetheless, they would take the leaven out as a symbol of purity. And Paul's saying to this church, and to all the little children who are in the church, salvation and sanctification involve removing sin, not tolerating it. And in this feast of unleavened bread, you are to take it all out. You'll notice that he says, a little leaven, verse 6, leavens the whole lump. Clean out, verse 7, the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump. And then he turns his attention in verse 7 to the feast of Passover, and specifically to Christ as our Passover, who he says has been sacrificed. I encourage you to meditate long on verse 7. And by long, I mean the rest of your life. Memorize that little phrase, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Meditate on the past tense. Meditate on the word Passover. Lick your finger and go back into the book of Exodus and find out what that's referring to. And how that unblemished lamb had its throat slit on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Which was hearkening back to another moment Midnight in Egypt when there was a loud cry over the land. When all the Egyptians from Pharaoh's house all the way down to the lowest pauper were waking up in the middle of the night finding not only their livestock, their cattle, their sheep, the firstborn that had ever exited the womb was lying dead out in the pasture. But as they went into the nursery... And they looked into the crib and the little dangling emblems that would try to soothe the baby to sleep had stopped playing long ago and that child is now laying there breathless. And at midnight we're told in the book of Exodus that there was a loud cry in Egypt because the death angel came and over a million Israelites were spared. Why did they live and why did they die? Because over the, over the doorpost and on the lintels of the households of the Israelites, there was blood splattered that came from an unblemished lamb. And the heads of the households took their hyssop and their wool and they put it down into that basin of blood and they slathered it all over their doorpost. How gross is that? And the death angel, when he went prancing through the streets and the alleyways of Egypt, on that fateful night, passed over all the houses that had the blood. That's why I encourage you to meditate long on verse 7. And I don't really care how long it takes because God can do more in two seconds than you can do in two lifetimes, but I mean meditate until your heart burns within you over joy for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's point is crystal clear. You don't need special powers of interpretation to figure this one out. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Jesus' blood covers us. The reason that we don't die in our sins is because of the blood of another. How dare we? How dare we hold on to and harbor and love and live in that for which Jesus died. That's Paul's point. The indicative, Christ died for you. Verse 7, you are unleavened. It's already real. It's already true. You're pure. There is no spot or stain in you because you've been declared righteous in the sight of God, being cloaked in the righteousness of Christ. By declaration, that's the indicatives, but there are imperatives. Be what you are. You are unleavened, so clean out the leaven. Be what you are. Finally, you're to, in the church looking to Christ, their purity and trusting the Savior. They're to celebrate the feast of unleavened bread two ways, with sincerity and truth, not with malice and wickedness. This is verse 8. Some will accuse Christian churches of being unloving. 
for practicing church discipline. The opposite's actually the case. I've tried to illustrate that already, standing in front of the chariot that's taking somebody to hell. Paul calls instead, if you don't discipline the man, expunge, excommunicate the man, that's malice and wickedness. It's malicious. Malice? It's malicious. It's hurtful. Not only is it malicious, it's wicked, verse 8. Which is more wicked? To let a man go to hell, loving his sin, and contaminate the whole church with God-belittling wretchedness? Or to deal with it as Christ dealt with our sin at the cross? To walk in light of the cross, Paul calls sincere and true. Look at those words. Sincerity and truth. We conclude the section of chapter 5 with the third and final part of it. Not only the church's problem, they were tolerating sexual sin, verses 1 to 5. The church's purity, that is trusting in the Savior and walking accordingly, verses 6 through 8. But finally, the church's plan, verses 9 to 13, that is tending her sheep. Tending her sheep. This is the plan. There are three little parts to this section, verses 9 to 13. The first is the Corinthians had a dismissive spirit that was rooted in their misunderstanding of Paul's previous letter. You can see in verse 9 that Paul had written to them before 1 Corinthians, I wrote you in my letter. So he sent them a letter that has not been, that has not survived. We don't, we don't have that. It's not canonical, though I'm sure immensely helpful, not inspired. So this letter that we're looking at today, I guess, would be at least 2 Corinthians because he wrote to them before. But in that prior letter that didn't survive, he told them not to associate with immoral people. And what I'm saying to you is that the Corinthians had a dismissive spirit. They thought that Paul had no clue about real life. But that was rooted in their misunderstanding of what Paul wrote. When in verse 11, Paul says, I wrote, dot, 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 not to associate with any so-called brother if he's immoral. And Paul says plainly in verses 10 and following, I didn't mean immoral people of this world, covetous, swindlers, idolaters, then you would have to get out of the world. You have to live around people living in sin. Because that's the only kind of people on earth. You can't remove yourself from all the sinners. You're to be a light in their darkness, not to engage in their activity. But there is another category of people. Those who profess to belong to Jesus. So-called, I hope you see that, verse 11, so-called brother. Paul doesn't know if the man's a real Christian. That'll be proven on the basis of whether or not he repents. If he continues in his sin, he's proving that he was a reprobate from the beginning. Obviously, Paul didn't mean the immoral of the world, the covetous, the swindlers, the idolaters. But he does call them to tend the sheep, the lambs. This is verse 12 and 13. Insiders. That's what he calls them. Those inside the church. You're to do something for those people. Judge them. Don't judge me. That's become the most popular verse in our day. It used to be John 3.16. That's Matthew 7.1. Don't judge me. Everybody who ever joins a church should say, with grace, with a lot of grace, would you examine my life? Would you look and see where I'm out of compliance with the Lordship of Jesus and help me? Paul tells them that in verses 12 and 13. Judge those inside. God will judge those outside. Verse 13 is a clear command. Here's the plan. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. This couldn't be more clear. Here, Paul is not telling the church at Corinth to skip anything Jesus said in Matthew 18. You never skip passages of the Bible. What he is telling them is this is a different situation than Matthew 18. 
In Matthew 18, you have step one, step two, step three, all of which are followed by, and if he listens, then you've won your brother. None of that here in 1 Corinthians 5, and it's not because Paul doesn't know what Jesus taught. He's not skipping steps. He's explaining a very different situation. This is a scandalously sinful situation. It's widely known in the church and in the community at large. The man is continuing in his sin. He loves his sin. The facts are already confirmed to everybody, which is Matthew 18. The next step is not, according to Paul, go to your brother and see if he repents, and if so, you've won him. No, 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 no. no. The instruction is remove the wicked man. From among yourselves. Jonathan Lehman writes about this passage. Paul had already decided about this individual, verse 4 and 5, already judged him. He was unrepentant. So, Paul calls for immediate removal. There's no need for further conversation with the man to see if he'll listen. But that removal has a further purpose repentance. The assembled Christians as an embassy of Christ's kingdom were to declare that the man was not one of their citizens. Rather, he's a citizen of the kingdom of Satan. And to this purpose, so that his spirit would be saved. The man was blind to his state, Lehman writes, and he needed to repent. Now I want to tell you something very sobering. I hope that when we read black ink on white paper in God's word, all of our hearts say, yes, sir. I hope that's the posture of our heart. In fact, before we read the black ink on the, white pa- uh, the, on the white paper in God's Word, I hope our heart posture is, yes, sir, now tell me what to do. It's a heart issue. Here's the reason I say that. God wrote this book to them. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to put those sentences together and tell them what to do. This wasn't Paul's idea. This is God's idea. Now, you ready for the sobering conclusion? Some of them didn't do what Paul said. Presuming that the situation in 2 Corinthians is dealing with the same immoral man in 1 Corinthians 5, you can find it in 2 Corinthians 2, when the guy's restored because he's repentant, Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, sufficient for such a one was the punishment inflicted upon him by the majority. You know what that indicates, right? Some of the people didn't do what God told them to do. No, 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 no. We're more loving than God. We're more benevolent than God. I'm just going to love him back into faithful fellowship with Jesus. No, you will not. It's like missionary dating. I know he's not a Christian, but mom, I really, really like him. That all may be true. There's just verses in the Bible that tell you not to do that. You're not more loving than God. And God told the church what to do with the man. Put him out. The majority, praise God, did, but the minority did not. In our 12-year history as a church, we've had seven such heartbreaking situations. One of those seven has come full circle by God's grace. It took six years before the man repented, and subsequently, after about a year of walking with him and his pastors in another state behind the scenes. He came back to one of our members' meetings and read a pre-approved letter of repentance, and he was then restored. We pray that the others on the list that I just indicated will have that same glorious ending because discipline is an act of love. We are not more benevolent than God. It is redemptively designed. Anybody who's a member of our church has heard the three sentences that I'm about to read because they're in our membership booklet and in the classes that we require people to go through so that you know what you're signing up for. Our booklet says, Healthy churches recognize and practice twin expressions of church discipline. Formative discipline which happens to all of God's people continually through our regular submission to the ministry of God's Word. We're being discipled. We're being shaped. We're all being pressed into the cross-shaped mold of Christ. That's discipline. This is an essential aspect, our booklet says, of church health. Second, the loving and redemptively designed 
corrective discipline of the church toward her wayward covenant members is also a biblical essential of church health. Do you believe that? For what it's worth, this is the first church I've ever been a member of that I recall exercising levels 1, 2, and 3 of church discipline. Though it may not be common, does not mean it's not biblical. So here's the application. Number one, I agree with what Josh Harris said. You guys may remember Josh Harris from his more famous title uh, when he was, I think, just out of his teens called uh, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, if you guys remember that book. After being a pastor for years, he, he wrote another book under kind of a, a play on words title similar to that one called Stop Dating the Church. And in Josh's book, Stop Dating the Church, he has a list of ten things at minimum you should look for when you're seeking to join a church. One of the top ten things Josh Harris says you should look for is, and I quote, do not join a church that is unwilling to kick you out. Some of you may be saying, well, that's a good reason I'll never join one. Well, let me list the other applications. Number two, consider the way leaven works. Think about the preparations that accompanied the feast of unleavened bread. How does leaven work? Jesus said in Luke 13, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. You remember the sin of Achan in the Old Testament? All of Israel was judged because of the sin of the one. Are we willing to tolerate recalcitrant sinners? hardened and calloused against God and everybody else, do it their way, no matter what God says, that leaven won't only affect them, it would also affect us. And on a side note, I would love for a team of our members, men, women, whoever feels like they're good at it, uh, to figure out a monthly rotation of us coming up with a church-approved recipe, not taste-based, but Bible-based for unleavened bread for our weekly Lord's Supper. So if you want to be part of that, email somebody other than me. (laughs) Number three, not only consider how leaven works and join only a church that's willing to kick you out, but number three, consider why Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed. Not that he was sacrificed. Consider that too, but why? Behold, the Lamb of God who unleavens the sin of the world. Number four, if you're a Christian, this goes back to number one, don't join a church that's unwilling to kick you out. If you're a Christian and you're not a member of a church, I don't know what that church may call it. They may not call it membership. I don't care what they call it. But identified connected, accountable, held to a standard by a congregation who knows your name and you know their name. If you're not a member of a church and you are a Christian, my application question is, why do you trust you so much? Why do you trust yourself so much? And I say that in love. I don't trust me as far as I can throw me. I need accountability and people in my lives who my life who love me and will pray for me and hold me to the biblical standard. So to you, I would just say simply, if you are a Christian, I'm not talking about everybody in all the world. I'm talking about born-again Christians who are not members of a local church. I say to you, there's a lot of good ones in the greater Memphis area. A lot of churches preaching the Bible, loving Jesus, faithfully submitting themselves to Scripture. Join one. They're all messed up. We all got issues. Just find one and commit your life to those people. And do it for the glory of God. Finally, this goes back to the dream I had last night. And the names of the people. You guys know that's not the way God speaks to us. But I do want to say this loud and clear. 
and with a broken heart and nothing but love. If you are living in sin, if you're in any kind of sexually immoral relationship, if you're adulterous in any way, romantic affair, emotional affair, physical affair, if you are in any way sexually involved with somebody who is not your spouse, repent. And prove your repentance by seeking help from godly people. Prove it. Prove it. By seeking help from godly people. And the last note I'll say on that before we pray is do not delay. Do not wait. The enemy's already telling you why it's a good reason that today's not a good day. Fie on that hell. Today's the only day you're promised. If you're living in sin, repent and seek help from godly people. Join me as we pray together. Father, we thank You that our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And that He unleavened us from all of our sin forever. And that we're going to stand spotless, pure, and blameless in the sight of God because of who Jesus is and what He's done and the fact that You have covered us in His righteousness. And Lord, we ask that we would be diligent on behalf of who Jesus is and what He's done in light of the Gospel. We ask that we would be diligent. I mean Grace Church, Memphis, Tennessee, her covenant members would be diligent to unleaven this lump of dough. That we would lovingly pursue those trapped in sin and we would biblically pursue those trapped in sin. God, help us to live lives that are holy for your glory. Ultimately, your son's reputation is at stake because we all call ourselves Christians. And it's for your glory that we want to be pure and holy pursuing a life of righteousness, submitting ourselves to one another for accountability and prayer. Lord, make this church shine like the stars in the heavens because of the grace of Jesus being applied to our lives. We all, all need You. And we're all susceptible to all kind of gross sin. So Lord, for Your glory, would You answer this prayer? And any who don't know Jesus, oh, how I ask, they would look to the cross where the lamb was sacrificed. And they would hide themselves under his blood to be spared from the wrath to come. Oh, thank you, our risen Jesus, for being with us when we gather in your name. Where two or three are gathered in your name. When the church is assembled, King Jesus is here. Oh, Lord, we roll out the red carpet for you. You're the guest of honor. We are so thankful that you're here. We ask that we would adore you. In Christ's name, amen.